Might as well have bought a goldfish or used one of the mannequins. I don't suppose you've got 12 grand lying around, have you? Mm, check or cash. Mm, Debbie's given us to the end of the week, and guess what? Well, do you know, it reminds me, actually, of a time when I needed someone to believe in me. Oh, don't start this again. You sold that workhouse from under me to her. I'd love to stand around talking about my shortcomings, but... Oh, don't worry, I've not got that long. I should be running that place. She should be sorting the Christmas cards. Yeah, shoulda, woulda, coulda. Oh, you put me back ten years. I could be doing a paper round at this rate. The talk of the street. 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 Welcome to episode 232 of the Talk of the Street, an unofficial Coronation Street Catcher podcast that can sympathise with Tim. It really is the devil's own job finding a decent winter jacket. I'm Gavin. And I do not like Hitler. I think we can tick that one off our, off our bingo card. Check. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> I think I know what you're talking about. Kanye saying he likes Hitler? Or, or did they admire him? Or especially... It was, I think it was especially Hitler that was trending on on Twitter. Twitter Twitter's fine. Twitter, Twitter's great. It's, it's still great. It's just hilarious because earlier today, I was taking a photograph of a photograph of Hitler's house. Oh. A very distant picture of Hitler's house. Like you see the, the rocky hill and then you see this tiny lump on top of the rocky hill and then somebody has written in pen... Hitler's house and pointing an arrow at the teeny tiny bump on the rocky hill. Next door, Taylor Swift. <laughs> I've seen Taylor Swift's house. Was it Taylor Swift? It was somebody in Nashville. I saw their house. No, uh-huh. it was my- Leanne Rhymes. It was oh. her house that I saw. Yes, because Taylor Swift and Leanne Rhymes are exactly, are exactly the, same. the same person. I just knew it was a fairly impressive name <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I shot big and I regretted it. Yeah. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Like I said, I was had a nice busy day, you know, working on a lot of World War II photographs taken by World War II soldiers and, and a, a signed copy of uh, a signed photograph of Paul Tibbetts with the Enola Gay, the, the pilot who piloted the Enola Gay, who, who dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. Oh. Yeah. Does that make him a murderer? All soldiers are murderers. In, in in that in that respect, then just following orders. Oh well, do you know course, who that you know who you that know who didn't work for? Oh no! All of a sudden, we're back to Kanye West. <laughs> well, that's good that you've been doing that. Nazis are bad. It's weird that you have to say it's that. It's weird that you have to say that, but yes, Nazis are bad. Okay. Okay, as long as we're clear on that, as right. long as everybody know where, knows where we stand on Nazis. However, we are the unofficial Coronation Street <laughs> slash anti-Nazi <laughs> podcast. And I do feel like I have to put this disclaimer out there into the world. We are not intentionally killing popular <laughs> musicians with our other podcasts. Yeah, that's, that's maybe like three or four weeks in a row that... We've mentioned people on our other podcast and they've died within, <laughs> within a, a few week. days. Yeah. First it was Loretta Lynn. Yeah. Then it was Jerry Lee Lewis. And then this week, technically, 
technically Stevie Nicks dodged a bullet. Mm. And unfortunately, it was Christine McVie who took her bullet for her. Yeah. So band members, bandmates of people we mentioned are also at risk. Right. However, you are very excited because next week we're discussing you two. Yeah, so Bono. Watch your back. I'm going to be watch, <laughs> watch you across the street next week. I, I guess that he does that anyway. I would hope so. Right. Anyway, we have an awful lot to get through. We do. Because we have the extra episode that we didn't do last week. We're doing this week. Oh, how was your week? It was mostly Watching being confused Coronation by Street. Coronation I've been behind and trying to catch up all week until today. Mm-hmm. So in between doing notes and doing Corey in under four minutes, I've been getting confused as to what's happened when, so... I make no promises that anything that I say is going to make sense. So no change there then. Okay. Shall we preamble, my dear? Yes, please. Give us some of that confusing calling news. (laughs) The new precinct is officially open for business. I thought this happened months ago. Well, they announced that they were building it months ago. Was it? Yeah. Oh, was it just a computer? Remember, it was a computer drawing of what it would look like. A computer drawing. That's right. Yes. The computer drew it. Yes. Yes, it did. Sally Diviner had the honor of cutting the ribbon today and very nearly having Colson Smith blow confetti into the back of her head. Did you see that? Where the actress who plays Sarah, whose name I cannot remember at the moment because I am an awful person. Tina O'Brien. Tina O'Brien. You just see her lean over. I just it was gently that, tip Coulson's confetti gun up it was and it. away from the back of Sally's head. Daniel Brocklebank kind of said, watch what you're fucking doing with that. <laughs> or what's that well, effect? He, he looked, he, he gave him a look, but it, it, it fell on Portita to be the one to lean all the way over and go bloop. But do you know any one of them who's listened to Sofa Cinema Club? would react the same way to Coulson with a glitter gun. Right, yeah. Why did they give that to him? <laughs> I've no idea. <laughs> so precinct, eh? Yes. It reminds yes. me of 1980s Dennis oh. Muir, but yeah. fair enough. We look forward to many visits to the playground in the middle for secret meetings. The playground is massive. It's massive. I, yeah, it's, it takes up all the space in the centre. It's almost like the playground was there and they built the precinct around it. Around it, it yeah. But the playground looks very modern, very 21st century. Yes. It looks that, that it's not on concrete and it's not on, gla- on grass. It's on that kind of safety, bouncy material. Yeah. The stuff they make tennis courts out of. Whereas the precinct looks very much brutalist 1970s council design. Yes, but it's been painted nice. <laughs> I'm sure It's it been has. painted in bright colours. Bright teals and pinks. Did you see some of the stores that are there? There's, There's a, a charity Chinese, shop. Chinese restaurant. A sweet shop. Oh, which is called... S- sweet shop or something. <laughs> I don't know. There was a picture of uh, Daniel Brocklebank in it. And then, and then Dan put another Daniel Brocklebank next to the actual Daniel Brocklebank. Yeah. <laughs> which, yes. you know. Getting mileage out of that. Absolutely. Right, yes. Right. Yes. <sighs> yeah, I, none of those stores look like they would be stores that survive in this day and age. Well, you know, I, I'm assuming that's the charity shop. 
that, that we've never seen the outside of. That is the one that, that um, Evelyn yeah. very briefly worked in. Why can't I remember the name of that sweet shop? Sweet enough. That's kind of like the well, hair, an anticlimax. It's kind that's kind of like the um the hair salon we have in town called It's Your Hair. It's your hair. It's your hair. It's not my hair, it's your hair. It's your hair. <laughs> it's your hair. Or the Chinese restaurant in Lansing called You Like? Yeah, we tried it once. We did we not did like We did not like. <laughs> anyway. It was a little greasy. And also I think we were we were in foul moods anyway because we'd just seen Spencer. <laughs> that didn't help. It did not help. <laughs> anyway, yes, new places for characters to, to live and work and, and hang be- out and have secret meetings. Right, out in the open air. Which means yeah. that maybe some of the, the kids in Weatherfield will get to use the community garden. Just- Which has no playground <laughs> equipment. Right. Oh, oh well. well. Meanwhile, on the TARDIS... Millie Gibson has revealed a new shorter hairstyle for her character, Ruby Sunday. It's really cute little bob. It's kind of, you know, asymmetrical and stuff. I was disappointed it wasn't like a, a new weird color or something. I, I was hoping for like like a big major change, but it's just shorter. It is very cute, though, and it suits her. And She is going to have to get used to saying it's a scar. So many more times than she's had to already. I've I've had to I, I have had to on Twitter correct some people already who are like, why is she misappropriating black culture like that with the with the thing on her eyebrow? And I'm like, no, it's 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 a scar. That's a black culture <laughs> thing, is it? Yeah, the shaved lines in your eyebrows huh. to match the the lines on the. I did not know that. Yeah. Anyway, and I'm not even eighty three. Thank you. Thank you to Millie Gibson for allowing me to have an excuse to talk about Doctor Who on this <laughs> on this podcast occasionally. Yeah, we've noticed. Yes. And finally, get well wishes for Kim Marsh, who has tested positive for the COVID Oofed. and had to miss appearing on Strictly this past week. Did they give her a bye? A bye? Did they just put her through to next week? Yes. Right. Hopefully. Uh, she says that she will be... Um, appearing this weekend that she is feeling better and and stuff hoping that she will be on her feet and in her dancing shoes real soon and that's Corey news and that brings us on to world podcast for coffee i am so thrilled that i get to use so many of my buttons tonight (laughs) some of them twice Anyway, we're buying our own coffees this week. As Christmas approaches, if you want to give your your thanks for another year of Cory podcasting, you right. can buy us a coffee by going to ko-fi.com, that's ko-fi.com slash the talk of the street if you think this is worth any more than the time required to listen to it. Help us buy presents for relatives who won't appreciate them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and and pay for Benny's physical therapy. I'm coffee. Not- just buys coffee <laughs> it goes on a card i buy coffee with it that's that's the one right, but then that's the one rule but then you know we can relegate coffee money onto let's not complicate matters this is coffee money what we do outside of that is our own business what are you drinking because you're not drinking coffee Canada dry 
Mm. I'm drinking a chai tea latte from Mark's place. Oh, aren't you fancy? And also a polar seltzer. It's a cranberry lime. We are not sponsored by any of these things. No. We should get Mark to sponsor us. He's he's our future in-law after all. Yeah. I'm sure it'll be worth his while. <laughs> I'll eat in Rapids coffee shop. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in case anybody ever wants to visit us, we can meet for coffee at Mark's place. <laughs> oh, Beautiful downtown So much to Rapids. get through. And now this. <laughs> Welcome, welcome. Welcome to Last Year Tonight with me, John Oliver. Just enough time to quickly talk about rhubarb puff. Oh, this was a new this was a new recipe that Nina was trying out at Nina's Rolls. That's right, this was Amy coming into Roy's Rolls <laughs> looking for a rhubarb puff. So you're kinda right. I mean you're absolutely right. I was Gavin and you were appalled by my baked stew opening gag. Well if I had to put back up again. <laughs> yeah. Invisibility is one year old. I couldn't remember the time that I needed to get up to go to work this time last year. Ha. Huh. We were back supposedly for the benefit of being face to face at work and yet all our meetings were still being done online and that's pretty much still the case. Yes. I remember while at work that my phone case has our faces on it. That was a little embarrassing. Hmm. We Gavin next door te- texted Steli to let her know that he had COVID, which you read and thought it was me. <laughs> No, that wouldn't happen until a few months after. Exactly. On Corey, it was a week of B-sides. Daniel's pomposity proves to be a massive stumbling block in his relationship with Daisy, but is an oddly attractive quality for summer. Grace sells her new sofa to Bernie, which eventually leads to question marks over the quality of care she provides to Glory. Emma and Curtis's wedding plans come together while his specialist appointment shines a somewhat unexpected light on the true nature of his condition. Kelly does a helpful turn for a good friend and lands a job sweeping up hair at the barbers, thanks to Marie and Gary. Fizz meets Phil with two Elsie's mum, Mimi, and her aggressive wee dog, and there's instant tension when it comes to Phil's birthday arrangements. Zidane's woeful attempts at laundering his way out of trouble attract attention of Ryan, which turns out to be the least of his troubles. Nina phones South America. Ashley's jacket has a massive collar. Homeless Shoes cough isn't getting any better. And the moment of the week was Kelly getting homeless to a present to thank him for taking care of her on the streets. And a boring moment of the week was Sean reciting different looks from the Oscars. And that was Coronation Street and the talk of the street this time last year. Shall we dive in, my dear? Yes, please. We have nine storylines to get ah. through tonight. And let's start off with, from Sunday's episode, Interview with a Harvey. So as you remember, Nick and Sam went to see Harvey and then he said to come back. So this is picking up at that point. So Nick and Leanne are making arrangements to go see Harvey and also to explain to Debbie that they won't be buying the bistro. Nick wants to borrow from Sam's inheritance, which he says is for his future. But Leanne puts her foot down. That's Sam's money. That's it then, says Nick. Our last chance has just sailed. Hmm. Meanwhile, at the bistro, Debbie's bragging to Ronnie about their playful hustling of Nick and Leanne. Nick sticks his head into the office saying that there's still a chance that they can get the money together. So Debbie gives them till the end of the day. Then Debbie is on the phone to the buyer from last week asking for another chance. But it turns out that they've had their survey back and the bistro is riddled with rot. Yeah, underneath, like... In the kitchen and in the hallway. It's everywhere. And it's something attached to the tram? I'm so confused. 
There's there's like a part of the underneath is attached to the tram station or something or the rails. I'm just going to blame good old fashioned condensation. You know what it was? Does does no one remember Horror Nation Street? Oh, we remember Horror Nation Street. Remember all that water? Had to go somewhere. Back at the jail, Harvey has completed Sam's questionnaire. Took a lot of guts to do this, says Harvey. I know, says Sam, and I'm grateful. Not me, you melt, says Harvey. You! And then after a pause, he finally apologises to Sam. Yes. That was the thing that you pointed out last week that hadn't happened. Correct. Now he gets his apology. So the others leave and Nick hangs back, telling Harvey that his empty apology meant nothing. Harvey says he has some cash set aside that he wants to use to help the kid. Use it to buy the bistro, he says. Nick wants to know how Harvey knew, knew that, but Harvey doesn't answer and points to a piece of paper on the floor saying that Nick must have dropped it. So Nick picks it up and it has a mobile phone number on it. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. Because it's not written the way that we write phone numbers. No, do you know why? Why? Because this is the United States and this happened in the United Kingdom. So you guys the, don't have area codes? the phone for, formats are different. Yeah. The 07000, that's the area code. Huh. But very interesting. it works very differently in the UK because you can just tell by looking at a number whether it's a mobile number or not. Ah. Whereas our mobile numbers just look like regular, phone regular numbers. Michigan numbers. Yep. Yeah. Or Connecticut numbers. Or, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Back at the Bistro, Sam is quite pleased with how things went. And now that's done, he doesn't have to see Harvey ever again. Leanne wants to know what Harvey said on the way out to Nick, but Nick avoids the question and Debbie comes out and says that she'll accept the last best offer for the sake of moving on in friendship. Deal? And it's a deal that's concluded in record time. They sign in the office with Debbie's heavy pen. Her and Nick thrilled that they're now sole owners of a bistro riddled with rot that they don't know about. And they celebrate with some bubbly, Debbie leaving to meet with Ronnie. But the bubbles on the fizz haven't died down when the surveyor comes in looking for Debbie. He left his tape measure conveniently enough. Right. And he says, well, Nick says that the place is no longer for sale, so we don't need your ah. services anymore. Yeah, no, says the surveyor, that'll be because of the rock. Can I get my tape measure back? <laughs> so Nick and Leanne storm over to the Rovers to have out with Debbie. Leanne threatening with fisticuffs. You've gone behind her back and you've double-crossed us. And this is what happens when you screw me over, says Debbie. Buyer beware. Although I'm not sure she has much of a legal foot to stand on when she knew about something. No, nope, it was it was uh, Nick and Leanne's job to get a surveyor. And they would have been responsible for that rot one way or the other anyway. It would have come from money from the bistro accounts. It wouldn't be coming from their separate accounts. So I don't understand I don't understand what the issue is because they wouldn't be using their own money, they'd be using bistro money. Mm. And they still have bistro money. One I, don't would think, assume. I don't think they have enough bistro money. But then how are they pay, paying people's wages? Right. Yeah, they're not using their own bank accounts to pay people's wages. Or buy stock and supplies and, and do they have pay any electricity sort of, do stuff. they have any sort of insurance that might cover something like this? Oh they talked about that. That insurance doesn't cover this. This is wear and tear. Or something like that. They, they, they did mention it. Ugh. Anyway, back at the bistro, Nick is gagging to get wired into Sam's money again, but Leanne once more protests and goes off to get more quotes for the repairs, and this allows Nick to take a call from Harvey in his cell, reminding Nick that the offer still stands and no strings attached, see? On Monday, at the bistro, Leanne wants to kill Debbie. They're arranging for quotes when Ed comes in and a low... 
Leanne secretly blames him for not spotting it during the refit that he was doing way back when this was for Ray Weinstein. Right, yeah. Yeah, before the great flood <laughs> of Horonation Street. And Ed says, well, yeah, rot spreads. This is right. what rot does. Yeah, and it can bloom up overnight. They ask him for a quote too. Yes. And the first quote guy comes round later. They've done a proper survey and it's a bit more expensive than they thought it was going to be. Ooh. They were hoping for around 12 grand, but I think it's going to cost about 20 now. Yes. Sam coughs Nick. Let's use Sam's money. <clears throat> no way, says Leanne. So Nick suggests just broaching the subject with Sam to see how he reacts to it. So he goes home to do that, but as soon as he mentions the money, Sam enthuses about how he's not going to waste it and plans to use it for his uni fees, which will give him a top job. Oh, pig's tits, says Nick. So back at the bistro, Nick has exciting news for Leanne. He says that he never spoke to Sam after all. He decided against it. Right. And he spins a story of how he's spoken to Melissa, Natasha's sister, and apparently she's all for it, saying that using Sam's money to fix a rock problem in a restaurant is how Natasha would have wanted that money to be spent. What a relief, says Leanne. Because it's an investment in Sam's future, because someday he and Simon will inherit the mm-hmm. bistro. And I would like to see that. I would like to see Sam and Simon, si- Sam and Simon's The SS Bistro. Oh, wow. We're back to Kanye West again. It's funny how things all come round full circle, isn't it? (sighs) The stormtroopers of the beach. The uniform could be brown shirts. Are we the baddies? (laughs) We're the baddies. Later, Ed's done his quote too. And would you, Adam and Eva, it's 20 grand as well. Nick comes in excited to tell Leanne that the money should be hitting their account later today. And he goes into the office and calls Harvey. He makes sure that this is all above board and there are no strings attached and Harvey makes sure that he doesn't answer. Instead, he calls Nick his partner in crime and then laughs maniacally. Okay, good, says Nick. Just checking. And that's as far as we get with that this week. (sighs) Now, was it premature of us or was it premature of me? I'm not sure how you felt about it, but thinking that maybe Harvey had turned over a new leaf after all, and is that maniacal laugh a suggestion that he has done no such thing? So I think Harvey, as as most criminals can, is capable of compartmentalizing mm. things. I think he genuinely does feel sorry for Sam and does genuinely like Sam, you know, because Sam has shown guts, yeah. you know, in, in persisting this and doesn't back down from Harvey mm. and won't be riled by Harvey, which I think is the important thing to think about here. Yeah, he's not intimidated at all. Right, whereas he loves Nick and winds Nick up and is capable of winding Nick up. Mm-hmm. So I think both things can be true. And I he think wanted he to kill be, Leanne, so right. we know how he feels about her. And he doesn't apologize to her for that. No. No closure for Leanne. Leanne's there, though, and they say to her, Leanne, do you have do you anything, have anything to say? you want to say? Nope. Nope. <laughs> why are you there? Right, yeah. And why and then, did you make such a big deal of being there? And then nobody ever says anything to her again. That was really disappointing for me. And um, so I think both things can be true. I think he can genuinely be sorry for Sam, but also want to, you know, twist the knife into Nick a little bit more and torment Nick some more. Right. 
I wonder how he will do that though. Will he will he start drug running out of the back of the bistro? Do you think? Well, yeah, he's got uh, he's got heavies on the outside to right. run his business for him. I guess. I thought his auntie is running the business now, isn't his oh, auntie? Oh, that's right. Auntie yeah, Sharon is running was the business now. Well, who knows? Because we you don't hear about it because it's not a storyline anymore. So who knows what's happened in the right. the machinations of this uh, drug empire or this mm. criminal empire yes. when the light's not been shining on it. But and Nick's desperate, right? So yes. desperate people do desperate, desperate things. things. But getting into business, and although it's not an official business, but you're still, you're doing business with this guy because you're taking his money. Right. And that opens you up to... Um, all kinds of right nasty things that you having to do favors and right stuff. exactly so it, it it puts a risk on you that this is going to come back and bite you on the arse at some point and Nick should be especially since more intelligent than that right well so many of these characters should be more intelligent than what they actually he's been do. running businesses all his life right remember yeah well also Stephen is his uncle. Yeah. And if he's been running businesses all his life and he's still hanging out in Weatherfield give him another 10, ten years he'll be the one on a moped can't afford a 20 grand bill Yeah, maybe you haven't been that great at running businesses all your life then No, maybe this was an opportunity just to step away from it and go and find something else to do because it wasn't a right. case of like being cleaning a business. up trams right. for some reason those aren't the <laughs> only two options Right, there's something in between there's got to be something in between but apparently not, as we'll see in another storyline. Yeah. Apparently, there's there are only like four jobs available, and one is something that you're you're good at, and one is just ridiculous. So Nick has told Leanne that it's Sam's money. Right. Sam doesn't know anything about it. No. But I can't imagine Sam's going to be happy that it's Harvey's money that no. is getting invested into right the bistro, and, and I can't fact- imagine that Leanne's going to be happy about that either. No. You know, and this is another thing that Harvey has over Nick. It's like, oh, well, if you don't want me telling Sam and Leanne about this, then uh, you need to do X, Y, Z for me. Yep. A little quid pro quo, quo coming into yeah. Nick's life in the future. Yeah. But, you know, I'm happy about it because it means Harvey is sticking around. We'll, we'll be seeing more of, of Will Malor. Melor. That's what I said. Well, I am Melor. <laughs> Will Miller. My, His name's Will Miller. It's it's my American North Atlantic accent. Sure. I say aunt. All right, moving on. Our next storyline is copyright Austin Powers. Oh, behave. That's Which just, storyline just, is this? just a terrible line that featured in this story. On Sunday, in Nina's role, Sarah is complaining to Adam about the menial roles that Carla has got her doing, and Summer is fucking useless. Later in the factory, Carla's bossing Michael and Sean around. And when Sarah tells Summer to get working on the Christmas cards, Carla kiboshes it, saying if Sarah wants to do that, she'll have to do it herself. Yeah, and the whole reason why Sarah's doing this is because of a conversation that was had in Nina's Rolls where there's a Christmas card posted and, and and they comment to Shona and she's like, well, one of our distributors always likes to be the first one in and Adam says maybe I should do that for my business and Sarah says don't be ridiculous while turning around and doing the exact same thing excellent yes outside the bistro Sarah's complaining to Nick about Carla but he's got his own worries thanks to another storyline Sarah should never have let Nick sell the factory to Carla 
Shoulda, woulda, coulda, says Nick. Yes. Back in the factory, Sarah catches Michael doodling some designs in between calls and she's very impressed with his range of what he says is family loungewear, high-end matching sets. This one he calls Mini-Me and Sarah says you can't do that because it's copyright Austin Austin Powers. Powers. This is is why Sarah gets paid the big bucks. Yeah. She's super at business. Sarah's quite taken by as Michael goes on a call and later she makes a pitch to him selling her know-how and her contacts list and he wouldn't be given Underworld a cut. This would just be between the two of us, see? Mm -hmm. So the conversation continues in the pub and Sarah seems to have worn Michael down and they agree to move forward together in this. Adam has a quick look and says it's very impressive but he's just said that so Sarah doesn't make him sleep on the couch again. They need to work on a name for the company though. Hmm. But then Michael has to leave because his mother's got the tea on the table. Yes. On Monday at the factory, Michael is buzzing with ideas for the loungewear business. Sarah is impressed with Michael, despite the fact that he's talking about the rival business in the factory. She's getting ready to drum up investors ahead of the first proper business meeting tomorrow. Nina's roles, Shona thinks that their idea is cringe. Ed comes in and he approves of the business plan too. Him and Adam for, Shona against. Later... Sarah drops into the salon while Mary is talking about a ginger merkin. Gin, um, ginger. Shona does get talked around, though, with uh, sweatshirts. There's there's a pair of sweatshirts that she thinks she and Lily would look cute in. It's just like the whole loungewear thing mm. that she's cringe at. She's looking for Stephen to invest in the business and can't get a hold of him, which is troubling her. And we'll come on to why that is much later. later. So yeah, so this little business idea between Sarah and Michael. Remember, we had Michael having ideas for things for before. For like baby clothes. And remember, when he first came into the show, he was the kind of wheeling, dealing, entrepreneur right. kind of character. That they've kind of forgotten about and they seem well, to have remembered about again. That's what makes him a good salesperson mm. at the Underworld. Right. It's his wheeling and dealing. But yeah, he wanted to have that little baby business thing. Right. It never really came to anything. I think Something we forgot happened. about that as well. And and now this seems to be the thing that Sarah's been looking for all along to get out of the the clutches of Carla. Right, yeah. Using somebody else's creativity. Yeah. She's bringing very little to this other than her contacts list. Right. And her contacts list, I think Carla's contacts list mm. and Stephen's contacts list. Yes. But hey, she can control C, control V with the best of them, right? Yes. Carla's going to catch wind of this and be furious. Yeah, they've made for the they've made Carla for the most part an utter cow this week for no reason. Just like, like they she's, made her. She's stumbling. She's she's marching around and she's yelling at people and she's angry. And Sarah is being ridiculous and calling her shit like Cleopatra behind her back. Mm. Which yeah, that's real professional, Sarah. Doing that with someone that you want to run a business with that's 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 exactly what you should how you should be talking about. Your 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 partner with now. Last week we had several things where they talked about stuff and we didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't see Hope reenacting Charlotte Hoyle's death by hammer. Right. This week we've got Mary talking about a ginger merkin, and we didn't get to see it. Although we did have Gary, so it all kind of it all kind of adds up, doesn't it? He's got waving new hair. Yeah, it's grown out and it looks so much better. Mm. Yeah. We only we only had the one ginger this week though. No no um What's his name? Gary. No, the other one, the grumpy one. I want to say Chauncey, but I don't know. 
<laughs> or Chandler. And it's neither Coulson? one of those. No. Not Colson, the other one. Who's Chauncey? <laughs> one with the brick. Chesney. Chesney. See, I knew it started with a CH, but I couldn't for the life of me. Imagine if Chesney's name was Chauncey, though. He'd be a different character if he was Chauncey. He'd be taking shit from nobody <laughs> if his name was Chauncey. Is that like, even a name? I was thinking Chauncey or Chandler, and I'm like, I know it's not either one of these, but it starts with a chud. I can't think of another chud name. And now if Chandler and Friends was called Chesney, I think that would be a different character also. Did you see the, the thing about Matthew Perry wanting to kill Keanu Reeves or wanting Keanu Reeves to be dead so that he could have gotten more parts in the 90s? He blames Keanu Reeves for his poor career. We all blame Keanu Reeves at some point in their lives, right? <sighs> oh, well. Yeah, we'll see where this... Maybe Carla won't have a problem with this business idea because it doesn't really touch anything that the right. does. Yeah, and, and she gets rid of being, Sarah. And it's not being done... Yeah, but she would also get rid. Of, she would also be losing Michael, who's like a really good salesperson. Yeah, Toyle take take care of that when she comes back. Sure. And Faye, we actually get to see Faye this week. Yeah, not doing her job, but whatever. <laughs> well, in the factory, in so the she factory. must be doing her job at some point. We never see anyone sewing anymore. Our next storyline is Chauncey's casting coach. No, it's Ken's casting coach. Cool. <laughs> I mean, I think it's forgivable that we don't know the name of the Swedish show. But Chesney's and then I can't name? remember Tina's name. I'm just going to call him Chauncey from now on. Helen is high as fuck. I wish. On Sunday, in Nina's roles, Mary is practising her lines in front of a very confused Shona. But Adam appreciates it, thinking that she'll be in the Dundee rep next, which may be good, may be bad. Meanwhile, at number one, Ken is thinking which Tracy interprets as being in love with Wendy, unless he's pining for somebody else. She tells him to stay out of trouble. And then Brian arrives telling Kent to fix the problems he created yesterday and get Stephanie fucking Beecham back on board. Yes. So Ken has lunch with Wendy and explains about his history with Stephanie Beecham and how he has to smooth things over. As long as it's all in the past, Wendy is fine with this. So Ken meets Stephanie Beecham for lunch and asks to put it all behind him. Again, Stephanie Beecham protests too much, saying that she did that years ago. They chat a bit about their past and Ken's family. Oh, to be 18 again, eh? She says, you'd still have fucked it up, though. Is that what happened, he asks? Isn't yes. it? She asks. Later, the conversation moves on to more current matters. Stephanie Beecham has written a play and she's keen to get Ken's thoughts on it. He's happy to oblige, so she hands over a big, thick manuscript with a wink. Can't wait to get stuck into this, he says. I just che happened to have it on me. <laughs> Can't wait to get stuck into this, he says, cheekily. It's called On Solid Ground by Stephanie Beecham. It's a one-woman show about getting shot on by an elderly Lothario called Ben Carlo. <laughs> she agrees to resume tutoring Mary, which is what Ken wanted in the first place. Nigel and Brian are thrilled to learn this later in Nina's roles. Nigel makes sure that Ken's cock doesn't cause any more of an atmosphere in the rehearsal room. Mary and Stephanie Beecham come in. Mary thrilled with how the lessons are going and given an opportunity for Ken and Stephanie Beecham to look at each other's crotches again. 
Back home, Ken is already making notes in the script. Tracy catches him and thanks to Mary, she knows what's going on here and she wonders how many more women Ken is going to drudge out that he cheated on her mum with. Ken says that he's happy with Wendy and wishes Stephanie Beecham and her attention would beat it. Later, Wendy comes round and they talk about the play. Wendy wants to know if Stephanie Beecham is going to be involved and Ken says he's cleared the air and everything is fine now. So on Monday in the community centre, Mary is struggling with the script, which she says is dog dirt. Ken thinks that it's a performance that's lacking, and Nigel is struggling with this mess, so Stephanie Beecham drags Ken away to cool things down. Nigel's really having a bit of a crisis here with how things are going. Now, here's the thing. Mary auditioned for this thing. Yeah. Other people also auditioned for this thing and didn't get the part. Wendy. Yeah, and Evelyn. Although oh I yeah, yeah. Even a, a, I don't think that the audition for the part necessarily, but the audition for a role. Right. So they had to have known what Mary was like before giving her the part. But they said beforehand that Mary was doing fine until Ken spoke to her and said, "Be more Joan Crawford." Right. And she's never been right since. But now she can't say the lines. The lines were very clunky. Right. But. Yeah, I, at least she's back to remembering that she's had kind of a Lothario lifestyle at some points by remembering that she used to do a little bit of modeling here and there. She did. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Stephanie Beecham drags Ken to number one for the chat about Deirdre and sips some lapsing Sushang. Stephanie Beecham mentions her script and Ken produces a very thin pile of papers. He's already had some thoughts and he's rewritten it. You've decimated it, she cries, but she must like what she reads because she becomes quite protective of it when he asks for it back. Then he gets a text from Wendy. Prior engagement, he says, and Stephanie Beecham smoulders a bit. Oh, what a shame. Mm. Yes, Yes, as she she talks about how tea only tastes good in bone china. (laughs) Bone. Uh, She's got, got, she's got a bit of Claudia... Yeah, she does a bit. Yeah, only without the fabulous hair. Mm. I mean, not that her hair is bad, no, it's but it's not it's, Claudia it's hair. decent hair. Yeah, it's just not Claudia hair. So Ken meets Wendy in the bistro. She thinks that he was in rehearsals and he doesn't correct her. All your hard work will pay off, she says. It better, he thinks. Right. Now, he's not come out and admitted this to anyone. No, how he's, that he's horny for... That he's horny for both of them. Right. Although I think he's maybe hornier for... Stephanie Beecham than he is for Wendy Flamin Papadopoulos. Yeah. Because he has Wendy Flamin Papadopoulos. Yeah. He doesn't have to pursue her anymore. Whereas the other one, there's the thrill of the hunt there. Yeah, and they've made out Wendy to be a little bit more plain now. She was quite exotic-ish when she first came in. I thought that was kind of what caught his eye, that she was new and exciting again. Right. And now she's not new and exciting again. Right. But here's Stephanie Beecham, who is very much new and exciting again. Right, yeah. And they have this ridiculous conversation about Eugene O'Neill and and uh, Wendy makes a joke that she about, doesn't know who Arthur, Arthur about, Miller. Yeah. about Arthur Miller. And you contrast that with Oh, it tastes so much better out of bone china, sort of thing. So, Eugene O'Neill, he and I used to drink at the same pub. 
together? No, like 80 years apart, no, but still. Story kind of falls apart people, a little bit there. But. People, would, people would come in and, and, say, and say things like, oh, is this where Eugene O'Neill used to drink and stuff? And this is where Eugene O'Neill... And we'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, he used to sit right over there. See that scratch in that table? Eugene O'Neill did that. He wrote Metallica on that table? <laughs> well, and they people, do have a new record coming out. And people would believe us mm-hmm. and like laugh. And I had I have this friend that I used to hang out with, and he lives in New Orleans now. He's got a and b in New Orleans. And he dressed an awful lot like what Stella dresses like now, with like fancy hats and, and suits and stuff. And would walk with a cane, even though there was nothing wrong with his legs. You he know, was a pimp. <laughs> no, he was eccentric. Okay, and like tourists would come in and ask to take pictures with him, and and he'd get pissed off about it. You know, that they were acting like he was some sort of cartoon. I wonder why. Oh well. Anyway. Yeah, yes. I, I think that uh, Ken is going to be playing. Playing a dangerous game here. Yes. And looks to me like he's going to wind up with nobody. Right. Of course. Yes. I'm enjoying Stephanie Beach. I've been, been at it though. Yeah. Yeah. She's fun. She's fun. I'm still Team Wendy though. Yeah. I'm kind of Team Wendy as well. Yeah. They, because, because Stephanie Beecham does things like Ken does them. You know, and it's pretentious, like Ken is pretentious. Very much so. And that just makes me roll my eyes. That mm-hmm. whole bone china thing. I'm never getting over that. <laughs> I can tell. But yeah, <sighs> she, she's she's a successful actor, for goodness sake. She's going to be off strutting the boards in that London, apparently, according to Nigel, she is. Yeah, it, would she be sitting here in, in on Coronation Street? Drinking tea with Ken Barlow if she had people beating down her doors for acting parts. Well, that's what and Nigel thinks. And training Mary. Well, I think she's doing a favour for Nigel. And now that Ken's there to mm. script doctor her one-woman play. Well, since when was Ken an good expert, at this? And when, since when is Ken an expert on one-woman plays? <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine what he would have done with the vagina monologues? Give me a minute. Yeah, it wouldn't be pretty. It would be a little, it would be a little sore afterwards. I think. Hmm. Anyway, moving on. Our next storyline is summer wind. Oh. Makes Sunday, me feel fine. Oh no, that's a breeze. On Sunday, in the young crew flat, summer is making Jacob feel bad for not having any qualifications. Aaron comes out to remind everyone that his dad is getting out of rehab today. Huzzah! And that happens. Eric is standing in the middle of the flat and admits to Summer and Aaron that he's an alky. No shit, says Summer. If I can just get through Christmas, says Eric, somewhat ominously. Mm-hmm. He asks where they got the money for his rehab from. Summer lies and says it was from Billy, but he doesn't know what it was for, and Billy must never know. Eric seems suspicious, but not enough to say anything, and he goes off home alone. In the factory, Summer has explained developments to Jacob. So Eric doesn't know the truth, he asks. What truth? asks Summer. Because even she has no fucking idea who knows what here or why. What is truth? And <laughs> how has this woman been raised by a vicar? <laughs> Jacob points out that this is all going to blow up in their faces the second she starts showing, and he urges Summer to tell Billy the truth. 
She says that she can't because Mike and Esther will get in trouble. Who fucking cares, says Jacob. Then I get left holding a baby I don't want, says Summer. What a mess. Back at the flat, Summer is worried that Eric is going to grass him up to Billy. I don't know why she's worried about this. That Billy, he'll like say something to Billy. She never sees Billy. Right, yeah. And she's ridiculous. He doesn't know who Billy is. Right, and she's and she's ridiculous. Well, Billy, remember, Billy and Todd did go over there to get yeah, Aaron's when, clothes. When he was drunk and fighting them. He can't remember who Billy is. No, probably not. I think the show has just completely forgotten that that girl's supposed to be smart. Uh, has human a human brain in her head. Right. She's still adamant that they tell no one the truth. And instead, they should move away until the baby's born. Because that's a great idea. Away where, says Aaron, and what happens if his dad has a relapse? Summer, who has already forgotten how edgy Eric was earlier, is sure that that won't happen. Right, he's fine now, because that's how alcoholism works. (laughs) You're fine now. You're cured. He had two weeks in rehab, of course he's fine. Aaron seems to be the moral compass of this relationship, and he wishes that they'd never taken the money. And that's probably code for, I wish I'd never fucking met you. (laughs) I wish I'd never put my penis inside you. On Monday, one time. And this this is what happens. Talk about a situation blown up in your face. Hey, Nick was born from one time. It happens. There's the proof. <laughs> it happens. On Monday, at the young crew flat, Summer's feeling sick again, so Aaron runs after her again. He reckons moving away might be for the best after all, but she's suddenly changed her tune and thinks Mike and Esther will have something to say about it. They don't own you, he says. Yeah. At Mike and Esther's, after the midwife appointment, Esther is up to high dough with the scan picture. Aaron clumsily mentions that they're thinking of moving away to keep Billy out of the loop. Funnily enough, Esther has been given this a lot of thought and asks Summer to move in with them. Aaron says they need time to think about it, but Esther and Mike don't give a fuck what he thinks and depress Summer on the matter, and Summer says that she'd love to. Esther and Mike Why? Give- <laughs> Esther and Mike give each other a high five. Make it make sense! Why she would think this was a good idea. Summer tries to hold Aaron's hand, but he pulls it away. Amy and Jacob are going to hit the fucking roof. Yeah. Yeah. Why would she think this would be okay? Why does... Why why is she like, yes, I will move in with you creepy people. Who live locally. Right. Yeah. And who attend my dad's church. How is this... Are they going to lock her in her room for the whole pregnancy? And never let her out? How does this help anything? What is going on here? Why did they forget this girl is supposed to be a human being with a brain? Well, that was my point. And I am agreeing with you. Mark the record. Summer then gets a call from Jacob. Aaron's dad has turned up at the flat and he's out of his tits on special brew. So Aaron and Summer quickly skedaddle. And by the time they get home, he's passed out from the drink. And then the day is about to get worse because when Summer nips off for a quick shite, she reveals that she's bleeding. Yeesh. Lovely stuff. At the hospital, a nurse confirms that Summer has had a miscarriage. It wasn't anything they've done... It's just really common to have a miscarriage in the first couple of months of pregnancy, which, again, someone should have mentioned this to Summer. 
And someone should have remembered this information right. and kept it handy when talking to Esther and Mike to say, do you know what, maybe before I take any money off you, maybe let's just wait to make sure that this is going to happen. Right, yeah. And the likelihood goes up for someone Summer's age and it goes up for someone with diabetes. Has nobody on this show watched Steel Magnolias? <laughs> I was, going to, I was going to say, Coulson has, but he's a real person. And, and not a character is in he, this show. Is he a real person? Do you know, every week, every fucking week, he says <laughs> www.sofacinemaclub, and it drives me crazy. It's www. There's three W's. And it's Talladega, not Talagada, or Tagad. Whatever he said. Whatever he said, it was not Talladega. Anyway. And it will always annoy me. So they've been told that a miscarriage in the first couple of months is, is really, really common. What are we going to tell Mike and Esther, says Summer, aloud? Why is that even a question? I, all of a sudden, like, she's really, really concerned about their feelings. Mm-hmm. Aaron wants to give them a call. Summer sarcastically suggests sending them a text. Aaron is up to his tits thinking about Mike and Esther, so suggests telling them in the morning. There's no rush. He reminds them that it was their baby too, and it was their baby that they lost. Right, yes. And Summer seems to have no emotion. No, none at all. She wants to keep this between the two of them for now. So they get home just in time to find Eric falling over drunk after splitting his head open. And, you know, God bless Jacob, because he's been taking care of this mess all Pretty much all day. Right. On what I assume is his day off. Right. Why did the, And why did they leave him in their flat that seemingly is full of booze? Because that's what Eric's been drinking. Well, no, I think he brought, because it's in his coat. That's not there. That's not. He'd finished that bottle. He'd finished the whole thing. Anyway, Eric anyway. reckons that he can take on Aaron, but eventually they managed to bundle him into a taxi and take him to hospital. Right. I don't much blame- to the objections of the cabbie. I don't blame you for hating me, says Eric. Aaron tells Summer that he can't keep doing this and goes off with his dad. And this leaves Summer alone in the flat where she ignores a text from Esther babbling on about Jesus and moving in and stuff. Aaron finally gets home. Eric's been kept in overnight. What a day, says Summer. Aaron thinks that he's going to need to move back in with his dad before his dad drinks himself to death. So Summer comes up with a bright idea to hit Mike and Esther up for some more money to put Eric back in rehab. No, no, no. They've already deposited this money. Oh, have they? But but she's like, instead of giving it back to them because now there is no baby, let's just lie to them and pretend the baby is still there so that we can use this money and not give it back to them. Yes, because the rehab worked so well the last time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's fraud, says Aaron. Well, I don't have all the answers, shouts Summer. And she calls this their only hope. Right. Uh, Instead of, oh, I don't know, maybe saying, you know what? Your dad's alcoholism is is not our monkey. No. This is not this is not your baggage to carry. Somebody get these kids into an Al Anon meeting, stat. Seriously. Somebody say to them. And I mean, I know, I understand, I get the fact that they're not really talking to the adults in their lives who are responsible for this sort of thing. But, I mean, Ken was right, not Ken, Kev was right there and helped them out with the cabbie and and getting Eric in the the cab and everything. And also Kev was really nice earlier when Aaron was, like, terrified that he wasn't, 
that he was going to be mad at him for wanting to go to Summer's appointment Mm -hmm. and being like, yeah, no, sure, go ahead. Just fix that gasket first. When he's not having sex with women, I like Kev. When he's not talking about women, (laughs) I like Kev. I like Kev as a dad of other people's children. Mm -hmm. Who knew? Who knew there would be an aspect of Kev I would actually like? Yeah, I think as well. Maybe if they had a quick word with Chauncey, maybe he would put them on the straight and narrow as well. He's, good old got, he's, he's got a good head on his shoulders, that Chauncey. Yes. But Aaron it, at least has the the awareness to tell Summer that Eric is not her responsibility. He is so close to also realizing that Eric Eric's is not, not his, his responsibility. responsibility. He's so close to the answer. It's so close. Because if Eric's dad wants to drink himself to death, he's going to do it. Right. And no amount of rehab is going to fix that. Yeah. Until he wants to go to rehab himself. and Until he... And, you know, at least he recognizes now that he's an alcoholic, unless he was just saying that because it's part of... Well, he was sober at that point. Mm. I just, you know, as someone who has... Some experience with with living and loving alcoholics. This whole story just really frustrates me that they, that that they're not they're not telling the story responsibly. And this is without even talking about how one dimensional Eric is. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He's. We need an alcoholic. Right. What about his backstory? What about the reasons why? No, we don't care about any of that. We just need we just need a human bottle of whiskey, right, to walk on at the set every now and again, right, and, and beat up his son, right. That's all we need. And stumble around. Yeah, I mean, it's it's nice that we even know his name. First name is Eric. It took a while. It did take a while, <laughs> and that summer and and Aaron both refer to him as Eric instead of your dad or my dad most of the time which is kind of weird but I think it's maybe easier to deal with when a parent is an alcoholic to kind of use their name rather than saying mum or dad because it it feels a little but again they're so close they're so close to recognising you're not responsible for someone else's mess Mm -hmm. you're not responsible for cleaning this up it's not your monkey Aaron doesn't think she's thinking straight. Fine, have a dead dad then, says Summer. <laughs> On Tuesday, Summer's feeling poorly again, but relieved at how things have been taken care of and are out of her hands. She's forgotten about the bit where she steals money from the creepy Christians. Aaron still thinks it's wrong, but Summer thinks they have no choice and will pay the money back somehow. We'll take out a loan. Well, if you're going to take out a loan, take out the loan to pay for the rehab. Right. Yeah, what is going on here? In the factory, Summer's working slower than usual, which Carl and Sarah notice and send her home, pretending to be interested enough to ask if she's okay to get home, but not actually interested enough to do it. Then Billy, who doesn't work at the factory, comes in at the factory to see Summer, who should have been at work, but Carl explains that she was sent home sick, and you know what? She's been sick quite a bit lately. Billy puts us down to the diabetes. So he goes round to the flat and asks if she's okay and that's all it takes to make her break down in tears and we think, great, she's finally going to open her heart and tell Billy. But she doesn't. (sighs) And she lets Billy jump to the conclusion that this is all a reaction to the abortion and he says it takes a lot to process but he'll be there for her no matter what. Cheers, Billy, she says, and she chooses not to mention that she's intending to sell a miscarried baby to a creepy Christian couple so she can pay for the rehab of the father of her on-again, off-again boyfriend. Later, Summer and Aaron chat. They still haven't told anyone else that she's not pregnant. They haven't even told Amy. And it seems that he's okay with them grifting the, the Christians for a bit longer. Right. There's, there's this whole, oh, the less people know 
the better. Mm-hmm. So like not even our good friends who we live with who have been, you know, helping me get my work done and yeah. picking up the slack for so me. So Jacob knows some of it. But he doesn't, doesn't know, know about the... He doesn't know about the mascot. Yeah, no. yeah. So Jacob and Amy know basically the same stuff. Yeah. So yeah, so Aaron agrees that throwing their good money after their bad money on his crappy dad is the way to go. On Wednesday, Summer is dressed as a Battenberg cake. At the young crew flat, Esther and Mike visit. They're early. They're fucking monsters. They barely sat down when Esther goes on about how excited she is and she rubs Summer's belly. Eh, do you mind? Shouts Summer and she runs out. In fairness... Fair, that's fair enough, right? That's Even if she was still pregnant, mm-hmm. that would be a fair response. Don't touch people who don't want to be touched. <laughs> how many times do you have to say this to people? You're not allowed to touch people just because you want to. Don't touch me. I'm not sitting here doing nothing. No, you can touch me. Okay. Nobody else, though. <laughs> Hours later, Aaron finds her in the community garden. This shit is bananas, he says. We can't go on like this. And he says that he'll move back in to take care of his dad. But Summer doubles down on it and tells him that Eric needs time to learn how not to be a rotten alky anymore. Yeah, she was dressed like a Battenberg cake. Yeah. So the creepy couple meet Esther and Mike later. You see but what not like they? that. Do you see what they did? With what? So the creepy couple meet Esther and Mike later. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry, I was I was still invested in the Battenberg cake. They've had thoughts about someone moving in and tell her that it's fine if she doesn't want to. Summer asks to wait to see how things go. So Esther and Mike happily go off, apologising for coming on too strong and being too excited and claiming that they only want what's best for the baby. And when, we, and when they leave, Aaron can't believe Summer just did that. She calls herself an evil person. And Aaron doesn't correct wrong. her. And that's as far as we get with that this week. <laughs> I could go on. <laughs> and I think we've said everything so many times about this. I just I would like to move on to the next story straight away. I, I want to go and get Chauncey's brick and hit myself with it. That's that's how I feel about this storyline. Tell you that's and, coming up a couple of weeks. And again. Just a couple of weeks. And again, you know, we, we posted a number of memes of the writers in summer mm-hmm. this week that you cleverly put together. Which one was your favourite? Oh, they were all so good. I think, I think the misery one. The misery one for the brutality of it. I think that summer is the foot and... The Cory writers are Annie Wilkes with her hammer. Right. I think I think that is yeah. that got somebody to say, "Oh my god," which <laughs> is a personal triumph. But I love the kids with the flamethrower. I think that's just hilarious. Oh yeah, or the or the kid with the magnifying glass. That was a good one because mm-hmm. it's very very specific, and you know, I, it's just that those kids with they, the flamethrower. By the way, it's a toy flamethrower. It's not a real flamethrower. You don't have to explain this to anyone. I think some people think you are that not it's... responsible for this picture. Well, that's true. not your child, and that's not your flamethrower. It's fine. Okay, but I just—it's not real though. <laughs> I mean, I—I I feel like we were all already complaining about just how much the writers must hate her to be constantly putting her through this shit, but then. They give her a miscarriage where we don't even see her at a hospital bed. She's sitting in a chair Mm. having this explained to her. It doesn't look like she's had any sort of, I mean, we don't. 
I don't need to see any intimate uh, examination there. No, no, but you would expect to see her like in a hospital bed, you know, still with a Johnny on or something, and you know, them taking more than five minutes to say, "Oh, well, you've had you've had a miscarriage." Bye. That is exactly my experience of that situation. Really? Mm-hmm. That's horrible. Mm-hmm. And because there's there's no there's no care. There's no. Would you like to speak to someone about this? It you know no. No concern about the fact that she might still be in pain. No scheduling of a DNC to make sure that there's nothing. Because it's been two months, right? According to her, yeah. So there should be some aftercare there. Yeah, I think they mentioned a follow-up or something like that. They should They should be doing a DNC right away because if you're, you can't leave dead I, tissue inside a person. Hmm. You know? And there's none of that. No. I think the implication is that that's what came out with the blood. Women just do not get cared for very well at all anywhere, do they? Well, further to my experience of that, we were sitting in a waiting room where people were waiting for terminations. Which wasn't the best place to be. No. I don't think. No. Nothing against the people that were there for their own business. But, you know, it's like... If you've lost something that you really wanted, uh huh, yeah, that was, it was kind of, like kind of depressing old day, right? Anyway, I think we've we've wasted enough of our lives talking about summer recently, so let's right. move on. Yes, to the next story, which is the book of Stape. Just a few scenes on Sunday here, where Tyrone has made Hope breakfast in bed, and Ruby is fucking furious about this. Yes, she is, and rightly so. And the fact that Hope doesn't have to go to school is just making matters worse. At therapy, Hope gets a lot of her chest, mostly at Tyrone's expense for not stopping the book and being too cheap to fight the publishers. The therapist is on the last chapter of the book, just for research purposes, you understand. Mm Mm-hmm. Back home, Hope continues to play on Tyrone's stupidity and gets him to agree to take her into town for new trainers or a tracksuit or something, and also makeup, saying her Macbeth homework is against her human rights, probably, given what's happened. Right, yeah. That was funny. Lead on, Macduff, she says. Right, yeah, so she has read it. (laughs) Uh. Then Ruby gets home to see Hope being pampered, and she's raging again, screaming that this isn't fair. Life isn't fair, says Hope. And she gets wired into a pizza that Tyrone bought her instead of her dinner that's all that happens in that i'm so glad that we get to see ruby being angry about all of this she's furious and she's kind of cute and hilarious so she's right yes and at least fizz recognizes that what tyrone is doing is wrong yeah so at least one parent is like wait a sec and you know and fizz says to tyrone when ruby says it's not fair that she gets breakfast in bed you know Hmm. Fizz agrees with her and, and and looks at Tyrone and says, yeah, what the hell are you doing? But it's not enough to make Tyrone stop. No. And, you know, and is talked into doing these things for help. He's like, well, you go and do your homework. Oh, I don't have to do homework. I need makeup and new clothes. And he doesn't question it. He's no. like, all right, well, if you need new clothes. It's like, what? F- Every time you think... Nicely put. Every time you think, he could not be a more worse parent. Mm-hmm. He proves me wrong. I, I guess I guess it's coming from the right place. That he's, Is it? That he's trying to be... 
that he's trying to be a good parent. Is he? And he's trying to be loving. And he's, but he's just going way over the top. And, it, and he is rewarding bad behaviour. And I'm amazed that he doesn't realise that that's what he's doing. And I'm amazed when Fizz tells him that that's what he's doing, he doesn't agree and then stop Continues doing, doing it. doing it, right. But it's, it, I think for Ty, it's just the easiest way through this. Right, because he still feels guilt about the whole Alina thing, mm-hmm. which I can't wait for Alina to come back with that at baby. Cri- at Christmas. That's when I think it's going to happen. Christmas Day. Alina's back with a baby. With a baby. A Christmas baby. It's a Christmas miracle. Yes. And Tyrone's like, look, it's the virgin birth. <laughs> I had nothing to do with that. Hmm. <laughs> uh, I don't know where we're going with that, but um, the more infuriated Ruby, Ruby we kills. get, I am, <laughs> I am here for that. Yes. Okay, our next bigger storyline is Todd pulling teeth. On Monday, Sally oh, well done. drops into the rovers and asks how Sean is doing after being dumped by his dental assistant. It's the talk of the residents' WhatsApp group, apparently. Sean says that he's a resident. So Homeowners only. Yeah, homeowners only, says Sally. Back home, Sean wants to have a father-son movie marathon with Dylan, but he's already made plans to play football with the lads. I'll come too then, says Sean. Okay, great, says Dylan lightheartedly and after the game Sean's got a broken arse as he ended up playing and got kicked up and down the place must have been playing the Corey audience then mm-hmm. he hates football but loves hanging out with Dylan Dylan though is impressed with neither he wants to Todd that since Lawrence dumped his dad he's been the limpet like in his grip in Dylan's life Todd promises to see what he can do to help so on Tuesday Todd sees Sean in Nina Rolls He's made a decision and that Sean shouldn't give up on Lawrence. Sean thinks this is fine, except Lawrence refuses to answer his text, so that pretty much makes it final. Todd tells him not to give up so easily. Sean goes to streetcars to have a moan to Eileen about Todd interfering in his love life because, despite renewed effort, Lawrence still isn't responding. So Sean calls Lawrence and this time leaves a message, calling Lawrence emotionally unavailable and immature and a bit of a twat. Sean says he's definitely deleting him from his life as of now. Yes. Next, we see Todd is in the Rovers, and who should be there but Lawrence? And he's already three sheets to the wind. Yes, he's very drunk. He tells Todd about the message, which he entirely agrees with, and it seems he misses Sean too. Aw. Todd thought Sean was texting them to meet up. Lawrence looks like he's about to keel over, so Todd decides that Sean can't see him like this, and with Daisy's help, ushers him through the back, just as Sean arrives for his shift. And Daisy, Daisy's expression during this was hilarious as she's she was. pushing him through the back and then closes the doors mm-hmm. so dramatically with massive eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Daisy was really good this week. She was. There's a farcical few scenes as Daisy and everyone prevents Sean from going through the back until Todd successfully loads Lawrence into a taxi but ends up going with him to make sure he gets home okay. And unfortunately, this is seen by Eileen, who's at the chippy. Right, and unfortunately... Eileen overhears Lawrence say that Todd wants to get into his pants, which this cabbie does not care about. Yeah, Lawrence is a bit of a horn dog, but but Todd isn't. Todd is doing the right thing. Doing the right thing here. So crisis averted. Sean bemoans Lawrence and Blowney's chances. Daisy thinks it might still work out, but when Sean gets home, he must speak to Eileen because he gets stuck into Todd, accusing Todd of trying to steal his fella. Todd protests his innocence, saying he was doing a good deed, but gets nowhere, so tells them to believe what they want, and he goes off to his bed. 
On Wednesday at breakfast, Sean is ignoring Todd because he's 12. Todd tries to explain again, but neither Sean nor Eileen are about to start believing it. Thanks for having my back there, Mum. Mm-hmm. Todd is so stung by this that despite the fact that Todd doesn't work at the factory he goes to the factory to explain again to Sean Oh, he says Sarah you don't work at the factory fuck off she says fuck off I give up says Todd on his way to the pub later Sean runs into Lawrence but gives his gives him short shrift when Lawrence tries to explain what really happened last night Sean doesn't care they're broken up it's all good and later in the pub Sean pours his woes out onto Daisy, who is happy to confirm that everything Todd and Lawrence have been telling them was true. Mm-hmm. They hid Lawrence from Sean for both their sakes. Oh, pig's tits, says Sean. And Daisy points out that Todd didn't lie. Lawrence still fancies him. So what's not to love here? It's all good. Yeah, so go and get your man, Sean. Meanwhile, Todd runs into Lawrence and Nina's rolls and checks to make sure he's okay, apologising if he's made things more complicated. Lawrence seems to be a good guy about it all, but Eileen comes in and jumps to the wrong conclusion again. Lawrence makes us worse by offering to buy Todd lunch to say sorry. And then later, Lawrence comes into the pub and he and Sean finally chat. Lawrence explains that he has commitment issues that he's working on and Sean admits that he's a bit of a psycho when it comes to the cock. Coaxed by Daisy, they kiss and make up as Todd toasts them, but not like that. Who isn't? Back on the street, Todd and Lawrence are heading to Eileen's. Lawrence is thankful for Todd, calling him a funny sort of fellow. You don't know the half of it, says Todd, lightheartedly and cock coquettishly enough to make you think that he fancies a bit of that. After all, Lawrence hopes that they can be friends. Yes. I kind of think that Todd's going to get in between the two of them now. I, I kind of think that he said that Lawrence isn't his type. He said that he's only doing this for his mate. But I don't know that... I, I don't know that Coronation Street has that good a history of having homosexual men just be friends with each other or does it well everybody's friends with sean and only billy has slept with him nobody's friends with sean i guess todd is kind of friendly with him yeah although they live together they so live that together, kind of so they have to be forces them, right well they don't have to be friends i don't even know that they are they're just they kind of they put up with each other more than anything else I'm just glad that Lawrence wasn't a lost cause because I like Lawrence. Well, we were going down a very strange road of Sean hooking up with somebody and then investing heavily in that relationship and then it all going wrong because he did it with Frank. The wank. Mm -hmm. And that kind of happened with Lawrence as well. But yeah, I'm I'm glad that he's back in the scene. He does seem a nicer kind of guy. Right. Far too good for Sean. Yeah, my question is, if it's so easy for Sean to get two men interested in him in the same year, what is Billy and Paul and Todd's problem? Why can none of them find yeah. somebody to hook up with? I wish I had an answer to that. Do do we need to do we need to maybe hire some more gay men for the show there, Coronation Street? Oh, the, the show's full of them. Yeah, yeah, and not enough lesbians. <laughs> That's the balance is or, very much or on trans the, people on or the gay non-binary. It's all the G and none of the L or the T or the QIA. Give us an asexual character, Coronation Street. Let's let's see that. Give us an asexual character. Well, they, they did it in Emmerdale, and it, it lasts for a while, and then it, I, I, I don't know it. it I kind of like when Haley's trans story uh-huh. was very big, but then 
But then people just got used to her being used a to trans talk person. About it and right. That's not a thing. Right. Yeah, and that's how it should be. Yeah, fair enough. Just, just like you know, most most of the stories that the gay men on the show have are not about them being gay, except you know the relationship stuff. But that's not really. It's the sort of thing that's about everybody. And our little baby bisexuals, we don't get to see them very much anymore. Our Nina and our Asha together. Oh, give that time. <sighs> yeah, when they decide to break them up. <laughs> right. No, I, I, I wonder that that little lingering scene in, in Wednesday's episode, if we just finished with what was a, a really nice end to that storyline, Sean and Lawrence hugging having a wee smooch and a very wee smooch and uh, Todd toasting them and having a swig of his beer if that had finished like that then that's fine but they had this little extra scene at the Todd. outside the house that yeah. just made you think hmm. I wonder what's happening here right yeah that was a very disappointing kiss I was like alright yeah more kissing on the show woohoo and then it's just like it's very it's a very chaste kiss Lawrence gives Sean a peck on the cheek. I right. think is exactly yeah. what happened. Basically, yeah. It's like that's his grad. <laughs> Sean is Lawrence's grad. <laughs> oh well. Let's move on then to That's how Prince William used to kiss the Queen. Come on, we've got a lot to get through. No no opinions being given here tonight. <laughs> Our next story is Tim's hunting wabbits. On Tuesday, <laughs> Tim has lost his corduroy jacket. And when that starts a story like you really? This is what this, yes, this yes. is what this story is about. Yes. Which Sally puts down to the fact that she gave it away in return for a self-help book. Right, in the clothes swap thing. She didn't reckon that he looked good in it anyway, but Tim is furious. And he goes to the pub to drown his jacket sorrows and Tracy wheels Stephen in a wheelchair <laughs> and pushes him over to Tim so Tim can take care of him. The official line is Steve broke his ankle chasing burglars in Spain or muggers or mm-hmm. something. I suppose he was over there visiting Liz or Andy or something. I think it Andy was gets Andy, a mention. Because right. Andy does get mentioned. Steve hears all about Tim's jacket and seems to know where the jacket will be or, or seems seems to be taking note of where he thinks the jacket might be. Right, yes. And he reveals that he didn't break his ankle tracking uh, tackling burglars after all. No. Back home, Sally... How, ha- how, did, how did he break it then? Well, we didn't find out at that point. We find out a little bit later. So back home, Sally has a gift for Tim. It's a new jacket, and Tim hates it. It's not his old jacket, and it isn't even corduroy. And it's ugly. But he puts it on, though, it's... and he wears it going back to the pub. And Carla thinks it looks like Elmer Fudd. Daisy thinks it looks like a proper Fudd. And then in comes Steve again. And Tweety Bird. And he's wearing Tim's old jacket that he managed to track down. Tim tries to tear the jacket from Steve's back, but Steve decides to be an arse about this and refuses to give it to him, which forces Tim to tell Tracy why Steve really broke his ankle. He fell over at a foam party. What, in 2001? Tracy is furious and tells him not to bother coming home, but it turns out Steve was joking about the ankle thing and had every intention of giving Tim the jacket, but Tim can go fuck himself now. Now, what is going on here? This feels like it's a story that's put together on the fly <laughs> somewhat. Roy and Evelyn went to every charity shop in the greater Manchester area and wasn't able to find Haley's Anorak. Right. 
a story we have forgotten that the show wants us to forget about, but we but refuse. We refuse. Damn it. Wait. And then yet we have another story about a beloved coat gone missing in the charity shop. And it's found within five minutes mm-hmm. by a man in a wheelchair. <laughs> Wait. Not just a man. Not just any man in a wheelchair. Steve. Steve, Steve in, wheelchair. in a wheelchair. I need yeah. I need to I need to point this out because it's not the wheelchair that is the problem here. No, that's not the main debilitating it's the factor. Steve part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so on Wednesday, Tim is still furious with Steve. Sally tells him to let it go, saying that he looks good in his new jacket and Steve shouldn't be in his cast offs anyway. Tim doesn't think he's ever going to get over this. In the streetcars, Steve is luxuriating in Tim's honking old jacket. Eileen thinks Tim is going badger baiting when he comes in. Steve totally winds Tim up and then finds a scratch card in the pocket and bloody hell, he's just won 250 quid. Tim wants his cash. Steve refuses, saying possession is nine-tenths of the law and Tim can whistle at his arse for it. We are finished, says Tim, and he storms off, off for a ramble. It's, and that's as far as we get with that this it's, week. It's Banshees of Inisherin part two. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm somewhat worried though that we got to the end of the week and that's where we've where we've ended that. This felt like it was a week long story for a little bit of a little bit of fun. Tim's Tim wants his old jacket back because Tim's kinda stuck in his ways and there's a bit of a fuddy duddy and, and likes his likes his things just so and, Right, yeah, it broken and, in. And Steve has inexplicably been an arsehole about this and this was going to give us a bit of fun. But this feels like it's a story that's going to now straddle a couple of weeks. It doesn't really feel like it's a story that needs to straddle a, a couple of weeks. And Tim's going to cut off all his fingers. <laughs> and he'll never be able to play the fiddle again. Yep. Sorry for ruining Manchies of Inisherin for people. Yeah, that joke kind of kind of relies on you haven't seen it. Or, but at least you've spoiled it for everyone right. who hasn't. So it's in good. the trailer! I like the phone party remark. Do you think, is this 2001? Right. Phone parties were a big deal at the turn of the century. Were they? Mm. And know, Daisy, would... Daisy says she never goes to them anymore because they mess. It. They stain your shoes. They stain everything. The foam stains everything. At the end of the night, they just fire all this foam on it to the dance floor. I think it's an attempt to clear it and get people to fuck off home. I but don't it was, understand. But it was never fun. You never had a no. never had foam parties over here. No. Landed the free my arse. <laughs> Yeah, that was quite amusing. And the Elmer Fudd lines were working as well. Right, and, and Daisy, and Daisy getting it doing wrong. Tweety Bird instead. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, that's a, that's a nonsense story. I don't know why Steve's been like this. I don't, I don't know, know, I don't know why, why Tim an... cares so much, but it's kind of amusing. And I don't know why we have another story about a missing coat that somebody donated and made somebody else sad. Yeah. Especially since we never resolved the first one. Yep. All right, we're on our penultimate storyline. We're, we're getting there. We're getting there. It's Mad Max Racist Road. On Tuesday, Maria meets Gary outside the furniture thing. Darren and Liam have been looking after the place and tidied up. They've done such a smashing job, Gary has no idea where anything is now. And Maria freaks out because Darian shouldn't, you know, shouldn't be working. Mm-hmm. And Gary's like, it's all right, we're not paying them. Right. And yet, <laughs> and, and yet he was working at Speed Doll. Oh, so he was. <laughs> getting getting a regular paycheck two weeks ago. That's an interesting point, Helen. Thank you. It's almost as if 
you know, somehow the show remembered that he's not supposed to be working <laughs> a little too little too late. through the story. And they couldn't change it because they needed him to be working yeah, to have to the be conflict out with going Max, on with Max. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so next job is to tidy the community centre because they've got the green light to proceed and everyone is thrilled. Later in the community centre, Maria is accosted by Griff. He tells her that he's run a survey with the locals and it turns out everyone is as racist as he is and no one wants refugees in their neighbourhood. Maria doesn't believe him and tells him that his stupid leaflets haven't worked because tomorrow they're signing off in the centre. Griff looks like he's about to hook Maria when Max comes in and then the two of them leave, arranging to meet at his place later. Later, Maria sets about ripping down Griff's flyer from the lampposts and Max is there, wondering what she's doing and what right she has to stifle Griff's right to free speech. That's not how free speech works! She tells him that he didn't have permission to post them in the first place and reminds him that he's hanging out with racists. Max doesn't care and tells her that Griff is going to be mad when he grasses her up. And back at Racist HQ, Max does indeed grass her up. Griff doubles down on the leaflet effort and asks Max to set up an online petition against the centre and advertise it amongst his pals on forums and that. And then at the Rose Gold Flat, Gary's shocked that Griff threatened Maria and wants to cancel tomorrow, calling Griff dangerous. Maria thinks that she'll be safe in the centre in the broad daylight and passes when Gary offers to accompany her. Yeah, you should have let Gary accompany you. Yeah, you should. You, you know it's, he's killed and will kill again. It's just good common sense right yeah on wednesday max is in nina's roles with dylan they kind of look identical they look like brothers yeah <laughs> max puts dylan onto griff's racist forum telling him to definitely join maria and darian come in roy excited by the community center events later today maria is off to see the oft mentioned manier max throws maria a dirty look and gary comes in before it can turn nastier at Racist HQ, Griff is happy with Max's petition results, calling this great ammunition in their war to protect their heritage. Max explains Maria's bragging about the community centre, and Griff says she doesn't know what she's dealing with. Right, and Max also admits that he doesn't think that people knew what they were signing. Right. That and he was just like, will you sign my petition? Hmm. And people will just, sure, whatever, kid. Right. There you go. In the community centre, Maria and Manier are chatting to... Darian about his experiences when Griff's racist gang march outside shouting about there ain't been no black in the Union Jack and all that kind of stuff. Furious, Maria storms out telling them that Darian has every right to be there. Why is she doing this? Why is she doing this? You know what you do, Maria? Pull the blinds, lock the door, and ignore them. Mm -hmm. Because what you're doing, that's exactly what they want. Yeah, probably. They want to wind you up. Ignore them, they'll go away and be pissed. Would you phone the police? I probably would, because, you know, they are kind of threatening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but should... And they don't have they don't have a permit to be protesting. She does do this quite a bit. Um, she'd rather argue and... Right. And again, this is coming, I think, from the right place. Yes. That she doesn't want to give them... Uh, the, right, exactly. But in doing so, she's giving she's, them she's their kinda, satisfaction. She's yeah. kind of doing it because they want to have this argument. Right? Yeah, they, they want to wind her up. Mm -hmm. So she storms out, telling that Darian has every right to be there. And racist Kelly's dad wants to see his papers, calling him illegal. Darian wants to leave, but Maria refuses to give in. And see again, she's doing it. He wants to leave it, and she's like, absolutely not. 
And then Sally comes along and tells Darren to pay no heed, saying Griff is in the minority. So Griff pulls out his phone and with very lovely clean fingernails shows them the result of the petition. Sally is particularly disgusted with Spider, who is looking more and more like one of them. Back at the Rose Gold flat, Gary says the petition is probably faked, which is the most insightful thing Gary has ever said. Yeah. Maria is sad that they had to witness such nastiness. Maneer, though, is worried that there's too much risk to go ahead with the community centre project, and Maria, again, is determined not to let the racists win. Back at Racist HQ, Griff, Max and Spider are congratulating themselves on a great bit of racism today. Griff reminds Max about the bloody forum and tells him that it's okay for him and his mates to hang out at Racist HQ whenever they like, which is really starting to sound a bit sex predatory into the bargain. Yeah, it's very, very much like grooming now. And that's as far as we get with that this week. Now, I think it was me who uh, commented on Griff's original comment uh, to, was it Saria, about your type here. Right. I think I'm going to call this out now at this point and say this is uh, also part of Griff's makeup is uh, underage sex with boys and I think I'd rather he was just a racist you think he's a pedophile as well I think so I I don't know I think that's where we're going with this I don't know if the show would go there especially 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 with the whole David rape thing and especially with uh, Max trying to spike Daniel's drink thing, mm. you know, which we have unresolved questions about, if you'll recall. Yeah. Even though we know that Max has at least once had sex with a girl. I'm thinking that the way the show is potentially going to explain Griff's racism is because he's a pedophile. I don't know if that necessarily explains his racism. It doesn't, though. but it, it it's it enough for ex- the show to explain it rather than thinking of other reasons why. And it doesn't explain everybody else in the group's racism. No, it doesn't. I don't know. I, I, I think this is just, you know, grooming the next generation to be racist more than more than anything really sexual. You know, you might be right, but... Uh, my inclination is that's not going to happen. I'm trying to think of why he would say, yeah, and as casual as you like, it's so it's so dishonestly casual that it draws attention to itself. And I think because of that, it has to be there for a reason. No, but again, I think, you know, this is how this is how this racist group recruits. Is by well, they've already done that, and they're already doing right, that. Right, but they want to recruit more than just one boy. They want to recruit more. Remember what he said last week about you know, this is this people kids like Max are what what we want because we want to train the youth early on to see the world as we do, sort of thing. And you know, these are the kids. You know, the kids are smart and and everything. I think this sort of this sort of grooming does happen in this way with a lot of kids that they and and this happens in in places like cults as well you know you go after you go after one or two of the kind of lonely kids the stragglers the ones who who have some problems and then you get them to go out and get more kids 
that are kind of like that. You know, this is this is how Char- Charles Manson recruited. It was it was the kids that didn't that either had neglectful celebrity parents or just had no parents at all and were runaways and stuff. This is this is how that whole thing works. And yes, it also works for pedophiles, but I think I I don't I don't feel like the show is going to go that way. I don't know, I just felt that last bit was so loaded and more so than it absolutely needed to be. Remember, Griff wants everybody on his side. Mm-hmm. And if you, oh, yeah, my, and if you convince Kit if you convince the younger ones early before they've had a chance to form their own opinions or or listen to more than one opinion, it's a lot easier to mold the opinions of youth than it is to mold the opinions of older people who have already kind of formed oh, yeah, their I, own opinions of the world. I absolutely get that, Helen. If I haven't been clear about that, I apologize. I absolutely get that. I just think there's something extra in what he said that is pushing me to think that there is something just a little bit more going on here. Yeah, and I disagree. But now we shall move on to our final storyline of, uh, of the evening, which is Tim's mum about the house. I like how we both kind of dance like Charlie Brown kids when that song comes on. Again, I think that's implied in the the (laughs) motifs of it. It has a bit of a Charlie Brown dance feel to it. Mm. On Monday, Stephen drops into the salon to see Audrey. She's eager to get the cruise booked up. Stephen pretends that he's off to take care of it with the three grand that he has burning a hole in his pocket. Oh, and by the way, she'll be charging Stephen digs from now on what with the energy crisis and all. And this was kind of shown up. Yeah. Making sure that Audrey wasn't getting right. getting ripped oh, off here. by the way, your mum's energy bills have gone up since you moved in. Yeah. How many times has he taken a shower? Mm. Quite a lot by the sounds of things. So he's still skint, so heads to the factory where he doesn't work to see if Carla has any consultancy work going. But Sarah says no and warns him off from even speaking to Carla. She's been in a bit of a feral mood recently. Mm. Later in the pub, he gets a text from a recruitment agency with an interview they've lined up for him. So he heads to number eight for his video interview. And it's a youngish bearded man who doesn't seem to be able to get by the fact that Stephen doesn't have a social media presence, calling it weird and claiming that this means that Stephen has something to hide. Right, and also that it's just, it's really weird. And when and Stephen's, like, talking about it, like, well, you know, you don't really need social media to do this sort of thing. And it's like, no, that's exactly what you need. Mm. What century are you living in? No wonder your businesses fail. Yeah, I think there are jobs where you don't really need a social media presence, but it was in marketing, wasn't it? Right, <laughs> it was yeah. ad agency or something? Right, yeah, I think. And didn't it have like a weird name that had like monkey in it? Yeah, it was it was three random random right. words. It was like an NFT. Right. Back in the pub, the interview hasn't gone well, but then he gets a call from the agency with another offer for him. It's as a fast food delivery driver. <laughs> and they provide the moped. And it's what? in Bolton. What what in what world are the only jobs going? A consultancy for a marketing firm? And moped delivery man. This is... Again, I I feel like I'm having to say there's something in between. Ridiculous that there's... And why... 
Why would a recruiting agency call someone? Do they have no other clients? Yeah, I've got a very so- exciting position for you, Stephen. This is a delivery driver for a fast food company called Six Fellows. That's, it's five guys, isn't it? That's what that's what they're going with. Do they have five guys in the UK? Yeah. Oh well, good for five guys. <laughs> burgers and fries. Mm-hmm. That's good burgers. Yeah, they're total grease burgers, right? But they're they're the, pretty good. They're delicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I imagine that they don't have the peanuts in the UK. I don't know. I don't know if the US I, they has don't the, do peanuts the peanuts anymore, anymore. either because mm-hmm. COVID and stuff. Yeah, COVID and stuff. Thanks, COVID. Thanks a lot, COVID. We can't eat peanuts out of barrels anymore and then chuck the shells on With the floor. With strangers, right? Before we wait for our Damn it. heart attack burgers to arrive. The fries are really good. Yes. Anyway, they're going to provide the moped and it's in Bolton and Stephen takes it. Drinks are on Stephen. On Tuesday, Nick drops into the salon looking for Stephen to find out if those cruise tickets have been bought yet. He's worried that they'll be sold out. Audrey assures him that Stephen will take care of it. And then we see Stephen in a helmet delivering fast food to the ad firm that turned him down for the job yesterday. Stephen tries to bluster them, but they all... What's the coincidence? But they all take the piss until they get angry when their order's wrong. Take it up with the boss, says Stephen, and he leaves. Yeah, and he lies about it saying, no, I'm I'm just doing a little research yeah. for a marketing job. And, and I've made millions before you were out of nappies. And th- that's how I know now why you guys say diapers. Because nappies in an American accent sounds ridiculous. <laughs> nappies. <laughs> well, you've seen it like, like Madame Chauncey there, so that doesn't make it any better. Aunt. <laughs> so anyway, take it up with the boss. Back in Weatherfield, Stephen's on the phone complaining to the fast food place for not giving him enough time to make his deliveries, and he's so angry that he quits. Part of this is overheard by Audrey, but he tells her that he was speaking to his Milan concierge. She chases him up for the tickets, and he says that he's on it. Later, Stephen drops into the bistro to talk about the tickets, and also he'd like to share some concerns he has for Audrey, who he says he suspects is back on the bottle and is worried about Sam's welfare on the boat with her. Nick hasn't seen anything like this to concern him, though, and reckons that she dotes on Sam and it'll be fine. Your funeral, says Stephen. Book the fucking tickets, says Nick. So Stephen heads to the bistro and asks to take Audrey for a pint. And while she's off getting her jacket, he rifles through her bag and pockets some sleeping pills or some ease, I don't know. Later in the rovers, Audrey is waiting in the booth while Stephen is out in the beer garden grinding up the pills into an envelope. And he heads back in and when Audrey nips off for a quick shite, he has a crisis of conscience before slipping the crushed up pills into her drink. As he's waiting for Audrey to finish her shite, he takes a call from Gabrielle, who is still getting hounded by people who want his debts paid, credit card companies, car companies, and she claims she doesn't, he doesn't have to worry about the car thing because she sorted that one out, and then she hangs up. So Stephen's mind is elsewhere when Audrey finally comes back and chats to him about the trip and resolutely refuses to take a drink. She tells him that she loves him and calls him special. <laughs> but not like that. Hours seem to pass and Audrey still hasn't taken a drink. Then Sarah shows up, wanting a ride from Stephen to an important business meeting. Stephen agrees and goes off to get the car, telling her that he'll meet her at the factory. And as he's about to leave, his conscience finally gets the better of him. He returns to the table and as he pretends to look for his wallet, he knocks Audrey's drink into Sarah's lap. Sarah is furious 
but there's no damage done. So Stephen is forced to use the last of the money that he's got in his account. I think this uh, holiday is going to cost 3000 and he has like 3005 or whatever. And he's going to buy Audrey and Sam their Norwegian cruise after all. But as he's on his phone to the tour firm, he spots a tow truck lifting his car. Then a dog, probably David, shits in his shoe. Back in the rovers, Sarah comes in looking for Stephen. Her shitbag uncle has stood her up and isn't answering his phone. And now she's going to need to get a bloody tram to that meeting. But she eventually finds him though outside as his car is about to be towed away. And he covers by saying that it's got engine trouble and he claims to be looking for something more environmentally friendly anyway. Beleaguered, and still with David shooting his shoe, he goes to the bistro to meet Nick and Audrey, <coughs> who both propose a toast to Stephen because he's such a swell guy for buying the cruise and that. Poor Stephen, just like... I'm enjoying how much... See, here's a character... Here's a character where I enjoy watching him getting constantly tortured and stuff. Because it's hilarious and he killed a guy. I keep on forgetting that he killed a guy. So he deserves this because he killed a guy. And nobody seems nobody seems to care. Right. Now, we're, we're still not looking for Leo. Yeah, so, well, that's a great point because you've got Stephen and you've got Summer who are both going through, in their own special ways, really, really bad times of it. And while it is painful and dull and cruel and mean watching that happen to Summer, watching that happen to Stephen... It's delightful. It's pretty entertaining. Yeah, because Stephen <clears throat> deserves it and Summer does not. And Stephen, again, but Stephen could also stop this yeah. at any point. Yeah. But he's continually being overheard by people. He's continually having to come up with different lies, new lies, bigger lies mm-hmm. to cover um, whatever he's been overheard saying. It's just digging himself further and further and further. It's like the old Simpsons thing where they're digging the hole looking for the treasure and Homer Homer wonders how they're going to get out of the massive hole. I don't know. We'll dig our way out. And right. It's that kind of thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's just the toxic masculinity is just so over the top. It's just delightful to watch him get tortured in mm. this way. And mostly get tortured by things that his mum and his sister say. <laughs> right. On Wednesday, Stephen and Gail are chatting outside the salon when Sarah comes along, wanting to chew Stephen's ear about her and Michael's business plan right now. Stephen, though, says that he doesn't have time. He has an important meeting and probably has some videotapes to return as well. And Sarah's aghast. And she goes into the salon to complain to Audrey about this, saying if Stephen was excited about her business plan, he'd make time to help rather than stick to his own calendar for his own meeting. It's making her doubt her idea. You're not the only thing that's happening in the street, Sarah. Seriously. And it's not even your idea. Right. Stephen heads off to the community garden to phone the fast food delivery company and he begs for his job back, near tears as he explains about Audrey being sick and how he needs a second chance and that Six Fellows is Bolton's top company. And sadly for Stephen, Gail has wandered in and overheard (laughs) pretty much all of this. Just see her behind him kind of blurred a little bit just staring at him it's like it's like when michael myers sits up <laughs> in halloween <laughs> Stephen is jamie lee curtis in this so Stephen explains that it was a business client who he failed to meet earlier and he turned on the sob story to get some sympathy although he maintains that he is worried about audrey 
and they get up and go and we see that Stephen has left his phone on the community garden bench. Uh-oh. Then Tim's mum is back and she's in the cab firm, blethering away to Tim and Faye about the dangers of dunking biscuits. Stephen hasn't got time for this shite. He's an important businessman and he demands a cab right now. How rude, says Tim's mum. Yeah, seriously. He's so rude in that conversation. So Tim's mum goes to the salon to complain to Audrey about Stephen's rudeness. Audrey mentions that Sarah said that he said that he had an important meeting and Gail comes in to confirm and explain the conversation she overheard about the six fellows meeting. Oh, they must be really good friends because he calls them six fellows. And that was kiboshed. Tim's mum starts quoting Alan Sugar so everyone else wanders away. Stephen has his delivery job back from six fellows, burgers and fries. And he has a a very stereotypical Turkish Spanish gentleman, boss. The Spanish boss. And takes a moped to Bolton. As he's doing a delivery, he's robbed by some scallies. And as he's protesting, he spots Tim's mum. Because Tim's mum lives in Bolton, remember? Yes. So he jumps on his moped to speed away from them before he gets seen. The youth's nicking his phone that for some reason has been left on the little parcel thing on the back. And he zooms away, loses control and crashes into some bins. (laughs) Again with the bins. I suppose we should have played that earlier for summer. Oh well. I did. Did we? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I know we played it when when you needed to when there was something that no, you needed I'll, to I play, played it for the summer bit okay it's been just been so long at the hospital he has scratches he's got a big bruise in his arm both of them and he's got a mild concussion he's told to sit tight for a few hours so obviously he goes to leave but when he opens the curtains uh oh Tim's mum's standing right there because she's been allowed in to see him because she's Tim's mum sure apparently COVID is no longer a thing <laughs> She explains what she saw, which wasn't anything to do with the youths. She hasn't said anything to anyone, and she didn't want to until she'd spoken to him. And he tells her that he doesn't want anyone worried. Right, yeah. She, well, yeah, she hasn't told anyone in his family. Yeah. She asked him what he was doing in Bolton on the moped. He pretends that his concussion has meant that he can't remember. And with the concussion, Tim's mum's nursing instinct kicks in, and she insists that if he doesn't want his family involved, then he must stay the night with her. He reluctantly agrees, saying his family are too fucking mental and he needs some peace and quiet. And she mentions how her house is so nice and lovely and that's why she's thinking of sailing up and releasing all that lovely equity. And it's like... Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Doom. Because unlike, unlike his mum, he has no conscience when it comes to Elaine. No, I don't think he likes her. Doesn't like her at all. No, didn't they have a little? <clears throat> there was a little bit of a flirtation. A little bit at the start before yeah. he killed anybody. Right. Yeah. When he was also kind of flirting with Yasmin. So he and, asked and for, made those comments about Andy right. Warhol. So he asked for his phone, but she says that she can't find it. What about my work one? And she can't find that one either. And he shits a brick at this. Back at number eight, Adam drops in to see Gail. Sarah found Stephen's phone in the community centre. Uh-oh. On the community garden, rather. And he hands it over to her. She thanks him and then gets on with doing other people's ironing when Stephen's phone rings. Six fellows, it says. Gail answers it and an angry man shouts at her for a bit about a moped. And then hangs up. <laughs> and that's how we end this week's episodes. 
Now, I was wondering... <laughs> Why does Gail iron so much? <laughs> it, She's Steve, always ironing. It's Stephen being so uh, distressed about his phone, because I hadn't seen it, I hadn't noticed it the first time I watched it, that he'd left it in the community garden. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was uh, Cinco Leo's phone that had <gasps> gone missing. But it's obviously not. Well, where's his other phone? Because remember, he still had a phone on the moped. That was that was the Six Fellows phone, I think. No, no, it, it because Six Fellows called him on his phone, right? So he had so one of those phones was Cinco Leo's phone then. Yeah, probably. Why would he still have that on him? Because no, no, no. Because remember, he crushed it. He did crush it. He crushed it because so somebody be... said something about tracking. Right. And then he threw it in a bin. He did. <laughs> Always for the bins. Always for the bins. I'm telling you. Yeah, um, I'm liking the, the the slow degeneration of his life. Yeah. That I, I don't know what has... Uh, do we really know what he, he ripped Gabrielle off? But I don't know if, if we know what was the prompt for all of this to happen. I don't really care. I, I've like you. I'm quite enjoying it falling... And it's so cringy watching other people overhear him all the time. Right. But he's just such a bad... He's so he's so bad at this. Yeah. And it's, it's ridiculous it's, how nobody else notices. Because they all have this idea of him in their heads. A successful businessman. And they can't let it go. Even people in the street who don't know him have this idea of him. Because Sally was talking about him and, you know, and how he's such a smart he 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 uplifts the community cuz he's so smart right. and dishy wandering about in them ran suit right <laughs> if he had 3 grand couldn't he have bought uh-huh. <laughs> anyway but i'm just so it- worried about tim's mum now because i think we're at the point where she is a completely expendable character right the, the, the things that the things that they've done with Tim's mum since Yasmin, where she's been, she's become an annoyance. She was an annoyance for Yasmin, and she was an annoyance uh, with the with Speed Doll. So, and she's an annoyance now. She's quoting Alan Sugar and and stuff. No, nobody's really that bothered about her. Even Tim's not really that bothered anymore. He doesn't listen to her when he's when she's talking to him. It's true. I don't know how I don't know what killing I, he, Tim's mum's going to achieve for him right enough, but Well, you know, it makes it easier for him to steal her money. He's going to I try he's going to try and rip her off. I don't think he's going to try and kill her. He's going no, to try and rip her I, off. And then accidentally kill her the way he did Leo. <laughs> right. And bins will be involved. Right. Probably blue ones. Yes. And I mean, let's not forget he tried to kill his mum. Yeah. Yeah. Tried to poison her. This week? Yeah. We tried to drug her. Right. To make her look drunk, I think. Right. But he doesn't know. He doesn't know the right dosage or anything. He could have very easily killed her with that. And And I think he he finally realizes that. She didn't even want a drink and they got her a double. Right. That he spiked. Right. (laughs) Oh, dear. Ay, 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 ay. But there's little pieces here that have been left now. There's there's parts of a puzzle that that several people have. Mm-hmm. So Tim's mum knows bits. Mm-hmm. Gail's starting to know 
little bits. bits and pieces. Yeah, what is she going to do about this whole Six Fellows thing? Sarah's starting to know little bits and pieces. So And Audrey knows a little bits and pieces. And Nick knows a little, you know, because, yeah, he's, his, his lies are getting spread a little thin here. Mm-hmm. And he's not telling the same people the, the same thing. Right. So, although he has been, he's maintaining some level of believability by the whole meeting thing seemed to work out quite nicely in his favour, but now that Tim's mum knows that he was in Bolton. Right. I mean, why was he in Bolton on the well, moped? He says he had a business meeting. It's always, a business, it's always meeting. a business meeting. I found it very hilarious when he's on that Zoom that Zoom meeting that had the um The odd guy. Right, yeah, but the music was for um the other the other thing that came before Zoom. Which we used to use a lot. Skype. Skype. Yeah. It had the Skype music, but it didn't have like the Skype screen, which was hilarious. And I thought it hilarious when the guy's picture comes up and Stephen like rushes rushes away from the camera to very quickly take off his jacket and his tie. Mm-hmm. And the guy's kind of like, hello? Right. Hello? I mean, I don't think being in a shirt and tie at Stephen's age is necessarily a bad thing. No, but it's it's something he's he's recognizing, I think, that that's not the type of company that he's yeah, it's, it's not taking pitching an it interview properly. for yeah, and yeah. that it makes him look a bit of a fuddy duddy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> again with the bins though, I loved the the Grand Theft Auto bit where he's rushing away and on the moped. Interesting that Steven's a playable character in this Right. storyline but i don't know how he managed to lose control of the right. moped well because like he was trying to he was trying to avoid the back of that blue van because it had stopped abruptly and so he swerves and that's when he goes into the bins uh, it was all good stuff it was good stuff and it was fun and it was nice to see tim's mom again yes protect her at all costs wouldn't it be sad if we could never use the Tim's mum about the house theme again? I don't know. I'd maybe make it something else. <laughs> we'd be, it's we'd too s- good to lose, right? We'd slow it down and put it in a minor key. Oh? In in, in, memoriam. in memoriam. Yeah. We may have to do that. <laughs> my, my In memoriam this year has only got four characters on it, I think. There was eight characters last year. What's yeah. happening with your hair? <laughs> anyway. That was the week that was Coronation Street. Tell me, what was your moment of the week? My hair. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what is my moment of the week? Ah, I don't know. What's your moment of the week? Yeah, that's a tough one this week. I actually quite enjoyed it this week, um, despite the extra episode. The, the, it's weird, though, because nothing... There, there was no moment that I was like, oh, that is just brilliant and funny and great or sad or moving. Do you know, funnily enough, I think probably my moment of the week was the, the bit where where Daisy and Todd are trying to hide Lawrence from Sean. Because I loved that bit. I loved the way that that, that was shot and I loved right. the closing of the doors. Right. And, stuff. and that, yeah. You know what? Yeah. That's, that works. That works. And we haven't given it to. Daisy or Todd or Sean or Lawrence in a very long time. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we've ever given it to Sean. And yeah. this isn't really giving it to Sean. It's more Todd and Lawrence and Daisy. Yeah. 
do you know what? I think it's got to be Daisy and and Todd. Daisy and Todd. Yeah, getting Lawrence out of there. Bloody hell, that's our... Moment of the week. Moment of the week. Your boring moment of the week. Bone China. <laughs> God, it, it could be any number of things, though. Is it that? Is it Sally talking about how Rosie is actually quite giddy about the whole book thing and thinks that it will get her an acting gig to I'm, play herself in the movie? I missed the bit where Sally never, ref- never misses an opportunity to tell people that Sophie's a lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that should have been our moment of the week. So Sally reminding people that Sophie's a lesbian. Bone China then. Bone China. Bone China is a China. moment of the week. Bone China moment of the week. <laughs> I'd like to. Never mind. <laughs> well, I think we better wrap this one up then. Yes. Apologies before I, for the before I start an international incident for the whistle stop tour of this week's episodes, but we did have a lot to get through. We did. Anyway, how do you like how do you like to drink your Lapsang Tsung Chang? I've said that wrong. I don't care. We're the talk of the street at gmail.com. Cup. And we're at Corey Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and Mastodon. You can shout me and Helen a coffee by heading to Kofi.com. That's K-O-F-I.com slash the talk of the street. From the microwave. Check out the clicky clicky section of Voggled.co.uk, you're so American, for links to our merch store and YouTube channel. And if you're so inclined, please leave a rating and a review on the iTunes or your podcast provider of choice. Thanks for making it to the end of another episode. Thank and you. We will be back next week with more. A talk of the street. The talk of the street. Bye. Cheerio.